Layman Church, he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Romans chapter 2, we are halfway through that chapter, six weeks into our series in the book of Romans, and so uh, we are just moving right along. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew, and if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. You feel free to take that today. Also in the pew, though, you'll find a card, and maybe you saw this somewhere near you. This is a card. We have been talking for a few months now about how we're shifting uh, some of our focus in and our mission efforts towards a sin city, which is a city that is identified as a city that we can reach uh, a population of the world because they are moving in. And so uh, Cincinnati is the city that we have picked. Uh, it's strategically located. It's close to us. We can get there in a easy travel up I-75. And so what we've done is we've gone and we've met with different church planners and we have uh, narrowed in on Austin and his family and Grace Church that we want to come alongside as a church for the next two years and help them as they plant. And so um, this is a card that you can put on your refrigerator, you can put it on your bulletin board, you can tape it to your windshield while you're driving. I don't suggest it, but wherever you're going to see it so you can remember to pray for Austin and his family. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, one of the, the most dear requests that uh, you can have as a, as a church planner for prayer is over the marriage. And uh, there is such stress and there is such spiritual warfare that takes place. And I would just uh, ask you as a church that as you, every time you see them, that you would pray for their marriage, that you would pray for God's protection upon them and as they uh, raise their son. And so you'll see that card there, but they, they sent us a video. And so I want them to introduce themselves to you. So here's the video. I'm Meadowview Baptist Church. I'm Austin. I'm Amy. And I'm Eason. And we are planting Grace Church on the west side of Cincinnati in Harrison, Ohio. We're excited about partnering with you as we plant this church. And the past few months have been very exciting for us. We've been in a school for six weeks now, and we have been growing and seeing visitors every week. We're actually getting ready to potentially move into a permanent location. And all of this is still pre-launch for us. And we're still team building. We're still having small groups. We're still doing team development. And the future is looking very exciting for us. And we're excited to partner with you in that as we move forward. So we thank you for your support. We thank you for your partnership. We're excited to hopefully get down there soon to meet all of you. But until then, we're committed to pray for you. We ask you to pray for us, and we look forward to how we can build the kingdom together. All right. That is a great Church. family right there, great man of the Lord. He loves the Lord, and he and his wife are they're making such progress that it is, it is astounding. This is pre-launch. They've not even launched yet. And uh, I'll let you know that on Easter, they moved into a school where they were able to meet because they had outgrown the, uh, the little uh, area that they were in. They were actually meeting in a, in a place where you go get like shakes, like a, like a smoothie king is where they were meeting. And so they outgrew that and they moved into a school and they had three baptisms on Easter. And so they are already seeing God do things in that community and they've not even launched yet. And so uh, it's exciting to come alongside him. There's a contact card there if you want to snap a picture with your phone. This is how you can get in contact with them and uh, maybe send them an encouraging email. Just say, hey, our church is praying for you. We love you. And uh, we, want to, we want to see what's going on. You can keep up. I know some of you are on Facebook. So you can keep up with them on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, but let me real quick tell you why Cincinnati and why we have chosen to go this direction. It's a strategic location with 2.15 million people in that city and in the surrounding area. And that means that there's only one Baptist church for every 10,000 plus people in population. 
And so it is, it is strategically located to reach the nations, but it's also an area that is deficient in its amount of Baptist churches for those who live there. They have a vision of to see Jesus glorified, stories changed, and disciples sent. As we look at our mission here, it's Christ Community Commission, and you can see how closely they relate in the mission of, and what the vision of the church is. They want to see Jesus glorified in everything that they do. We are a Christ-centered church. We align on that, and uh, they want to see stories changed as people begin to have conversations in community, and as they begin to walk through what it looks like to be discipled, they want to see people's lives changed. And then not only that, they want to take that discipleship and then go out from it. So they want to be kingdom focused. The area that they're in, you're going to, you're going to love this. The area they're in is Harrison, Ohio. Okay, so that's just west of Cincinnati. It's, it's real quick. It's a suburb of Cincinnati. And it's Harrison, Ohio in Hamilton County. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. I think the Lord is sovereign, okay? And he's providential. So uh, it was like, it's the Lord's will, Jeff. It's the Lord's will. Look at what he did. In this town and in the seven-mile radius of this town, there are 37,000 people, and it's growing. How many Baptist churches are in this town? One. For 37,000 people. What a remarkable thought that this one, this one church, great church, older church, been there, been established, and is aging. And I, I don't mean this in a, in a mean way. This is, this is just kind of what you see in the area. It's not growing like it once did. And so this is an opportunity for a guy like Austin to come in and say, we want to partner with that church and local churches to reach people in our community because it's a dark, dark world. So church, what we've decided to do is to be one of many partnering churches with them. And so uh, if it was up to us, they would starve, okay? Like, let's just be honest, they would starve. So we're going to partner with other churches, and we're going to support them in the next two to three years to see them fully launch and be fully established as their own church. And so praise God, we're looking forward to that taking place, amen? So what does that mean? That means they need support in these ways, prayer. Prayer is powerful, and I, I can't begin to tell you how powerful it is and how if he knew that there was an army of prayer warriors praying for him and his family and for their church, what a difference that would make in their life. So I would, I would plead with you to pray for them. They said we desire to partner with others to ask God to reclaim worshipers to himself, to establish his church in Harrison and to bless the work of Grace Church. Can, can you commit to pray for them? That, that's where you respond. That was not rhetorical. Okay, good, yeah. Oh, we'll work on it. Okay, we got two more. We'll do this. Okay, provide. Our greatest financial need is to develop a team of monthly givers who support Grace Church over the next three to five years, and we as a church have committed to do that. And so uh, as you give, you are giving to the Great Commission. And uh, what, what was done in our church, and I'll just go ahead and say this, there was money set aside for COVID relief that we had set aside a, a large sum of money to support churches, to support church planners, and we are now taking that money and we are focusing it in on helping them get established. And so your money is going to the Great Commission when you give to the church. So we are gonna provide and participate. Whether it be a short-term mission trip or sending encouraging cards and emails, we want you to participate in the life of Grace Church. We want you as a Sunday school class, as you would call it, or a small group or a gathering of people who stare at each other in a circle, whatever you want to call it. If you wanted to take a card and say, listen, we're going to send them a gift card and we're going to say, hey, 
Olive Garden, on us. We love you. We're praying for your family. These are ways that you can partner and participate with. And, and I'll just let you know, we're already having discussions about the end of summer going up there and doing a back-to-school bash block party for them where we can take that group, that community, and we can just love on them and uh, be a part of what God's doing. So uh, let, me, let me ask you this. Will you pray? Will you provide? And will you participate? Well, let's pray right now. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your kingdom. You even taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, you tell us the workers are few and the harvest is ready. Lord, I pray that you would send out those of us from the pew to the harvest, even today. That you would call us to be kingdom focused. Father, we thank you for Austin and his family. We thank you for the answer to the call that you've placed on their life and for the work that you're going to do in Harrison, Ohio, and in Cincinnati. And I pray for him this morning as they are in service with a small gathering of people that you would speak to them through your word, that you would move powerfully in their midst, and that you would bless their church and you would bless us as we are a church that seeks to come alongside. Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your word. And we ask God that right now that you would change our hearts and our minds and our wills to match it. In Christ's name, amen. Romans chapter two, we're like in the middle of a sentence, right? We're like right in the middle of a thought. Paul is going, he's been pleading his case. Romans chapter one, talking to the Gentile, talking to the heathen. These are all the things that they do. And then he shifts gears, chapter two. Hey, religious person, don't be pointing fingers because you do the very same things that they do. And so now he's in the middle of this thought leading towards the religious person, namely the Jewish person. And he's saying, hey, you can't look in the mirror and begin to judge yourself based on what everyone else looks like. You have to look at yourself in the mirror based on what God's word says. And so what he's doing, he's saying, don't, don't compare yourself to others, but look at your life in comparison to the word of God. James would say roughly the same thing in James chapter 1, 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James and Paul would agree on the fact that you cannot just be a hearer of God's word, you must also be a doer. There must be a transformation that takes place in your life. The more that you're in God's word, the more transformation that takes place in your life. And so he's saying, don't be like someone who says, yeah, I see, I hear, I look at myself in the mirror, and then walk away and forget everything that you've learned. Last week, we talked about how hypocrisy happens in the heart. It happens in the heart, and then it works itself out into our actions. And if our heart doesn't change, our habits will never change. And so as Paul furthers his case here, he's going to get into more of the actions of hypocrisy and not the attitude or the heart of hypocrisy. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I've given you plenty of time to find it. Romans chapter 2 starting in verse 17. 
Let's read. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's word. The first thing I want you to see this morning is hypocritical habits hide behind knowledge. They hide behind knowledge. He says there, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He's saying, listen, if you are sure that you are this people, that you have been given the law of God and that you have attained all of this knowledge, then you have these responsibilities. Are you sure that you're this? Because you're not exempt. And this is what he's going to say. You're not exempt from the command of the law. So the Jew thought themselves exempt from God's judgment because of these things. They had three grounds that they boasted in or confidences that they had rather than their confidence being in Christ. And this was it, a Jewish heritage or a chosen people. They would say, listen, we're God's people. Listen, they didn't choose you, they chose us. They didn't choose Americans, they didn't choose Egyptians, they didn't choose Babylonians, they, he didn't choose any of those. He chose us. We are better than you because we're God's chosen people. So they would boast in this. They would also boast in a special revelation, the possession of God's law. God's not only our God, not only did he choose us, but he wrote down the law for us and we have it. So we know his ceremonial laws, his civil laws, his moral law. We know, we know what God's requirements are. We have them written down. And back in those days, they would even memorize them. We know God's law. So they boast in the law. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant relationship with God. Not only are we chosen, and not only do we have God's law, but there is a physical sign that shows that we are God's people and we are in a relationship with him. We have all of these things, so they thought themselves exempt from the judgment of God, unlike the heathen in chapter 1. And so what Paul's going to do is say, all right, so if you are all these things, let me ask you a few questions. Verse 18, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. 
Here's where he begins. If you are instructed by the law, if you have this information, your spiritual information, this biblical information is for spiritual transformation. It's not just for you to get smarter, to know more, to say that you know it. Let me ask you, has biblical information in your life led to spiritual transformation? And we can ask ourselves these questions. Does the information you know from God's word transform the way you live? Does what you've read in God's word transform the way you live? Okay, next question. Does the information you know from God's word transform the decisions you make? So at some point, you and I, we're gonna be at a crossroads where we have to make a decision, whether for our, our job or finances or family or whatever it might be, and we're gonna have to make a decision. We're gonna say, okay, what is gonna, what is gonna dictate this decision here? Is it biblical information? Or is it other things that are gonna dictate the situation, the decision I make? Okay, well, how about this one? This one's the toughest one. Does the information you know from God's word transform the relationships you have? For all the things that you've been taught in God's word and how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, has that knowledge transformed the way you treat people at work? Has that knowledge transform the way you treat people in your family? Has that knowledge transformed the relationships that you have, how you interact with people, how you treat people on a daily basis? So what Paul is beginning to do is say, listen, if you have this knowledge, if you've been given the special revelation, you are gonna be held to it, whether it transforms you or not. Now, many of us in this room, we were raised from childhood with the Holy Scriptures, am I right? Some of you, you memorized a Bible verse before you got out of nursery, okay? You were like, Jesus wept, I wept. There we go, right? You knew that one. We were raised hearing the stories from the Old Testament. We knew from a young age what religious moral code of ethics was, what is right and what is wrong. From childhood, we were instructed in these things and the question is, did that information lead to a transformation as you grew, not only physically, but spiritually? If your, if your biblical intake of information is not producing an inward transformation, then you're missing the power of God's word. And here's the fear, is that we can become so focused on information. How many Bible studies do we go through where we can gain more information? But does it ever lead to transformation? Does it ever change the way we interact with others, the, the call that God's placed on our life? If we know the will of God and what is excellent and what is true, do we then pursue those things because it's been revealed to us in God's word? As Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me ask you one quick question. Are you considering yourself complete and equipped for every good work? No, no one's gonna answer that, no, no. I. I wouldn't say that I'm complete, and I wouldn't say that I'm equipped for everything, for every good work. I, I think I need to learn more. I think I need more information on that. 
What if it was more of a, no, I need more transformation because there are things in my life that need to be reproved. There are things that I need the word of God to bring correction to. Not that I need more information, it's that I need to take the information that I've been given and allow it to start speaking into my heart and start cutting away things that shouldn't be there. So Paul writes to them, hey, you who have the law, do you follow it? Verses 19 through 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. If you're sure you're all these things, then you have a responsibility. Listen, special revelation comes with specific responsibilities. If you have been given the word of God, you have now been given a responsibility. And here's the responsibility, to be a guide to the blind, to the ones who don't know God's word. You are to be a light to those who are in darkness, those who are living apart from God's word. You are to be an instructor to the foolish. As you live a life of wisdom based on God's word, you are then to instruct those who are making foolish decisions. Listen, what you're doing is not biblical. You are to be a teacher to your children. You are to raise them in the faith. There is a responsibility that is then placed on those who have the special revelation. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 9. Read this with me. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. As the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Here's, here it is. Take care lest you forget. Don't be someone who looks at themselves in the mirror and then immediately walks away and forgets what they look like. Because if you forget the word of God, it will affect not only you and your life, but it will affect generation and generation to come. An informed life will never be as powerful a witness as a transformed life. Parents and grandparents, the knowledge you have, the information you have will never be a witness as much as the transformation that God has done in your life. We cannot teach our children biblical information without a continual display of biblical transformation. Children and children's children, they need to see a continual reproof of scripture in your life, a continual confession of the sins that are going on in your life, a continual repentance as we, we talked about last week where they see that you are allowing God's word to mold you and shape you into the image of God, not that you're perfect, but that you are in the process. 
that he is sanctifying you. Our witness is not a matter of showing perfection in the faith, but rather progression in the faith. Let me ask you, not only is your family seeing a progression in your faith, are the people around you seeing a progression in your faith? Are they seeing how God's word is correcting and reproving and training you in righteousness? How you're allowing it to mold and shape you into the image of Christ? This is a witness that we can't hide behind knowledge. Do you display a continual progression in the faith? Let me ask you this really hard question. Does your way of living edify your family's faith or nullify your family's faith? There are many who walk away from the faith because they would say that there's a hypocrisy in the church, in the home, in the lives of those who claim to have knowledge but show no transformation from it. As Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to be a witness in our homes before we can ever be a witness in this world. Number two, hypocritical habits hinder missional evangelism. We've already kind of touched on this, but we're going to kind of unfold it a little bit more. Romans 2, 21 through 24, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking his law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. These are difficult, difficult scriptures. The story goes, and I'm not sure of its validity, how true it is, but the story goes that Gandhi once considered the possibility of becoming a follower of Christ. He was attracted by Jesus' teaching and his life, and so Gandhi decided to attend a church service in South Africa, and later he wrote, the congregation did not strike me as being particularly religious. They were not an assembly of devout souls, but appeared rather to be worldly-minded people, going to church for recreation and in conformity to a custom. Christianity, he concluded, cannot add any value to his life. Wow. Hypocritical habits hinder missional evangelism because they don't practice what they preach. Have you heard that phrase? You need to practice what you preach? That's the worst thing for someone to say to you, right? You need to practice what you preach. Well, Paul here is beginning to say this very thing to the Jewish religious people. Hey, you're not really practicing what you preach. In fact, you're breaking the law but you're trying to find the loopholes so that it's not so obvious. In fact, you're practicing being strict on certain laws that you're comfortable keeping, and you're being lax on your interpretation of laws that you don't intend to keep. So this is what they're doing. So he's going to give four examples here. He's going to say, okay, let me hold the mirror up to you. Falsehood, stealing, adultery, and idolatry. He says, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourselves? Falsehood. Matthew 23, 
1 through 3, Paul sa- uh, Jesus says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Jesus would say, listen, they've got the law. They've got the information. They know right and wrong. They, they've got it down. They've memorized it. Listen to what they say because they know what they're talking about, but do not follow their example. Do not allow the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisee and Sadducee to come into your life. Beware of that. Watch out because this facade of religion can take hold of your life, and before too long, it can affect every area of your spiritual life And you will just be left with a pious shell of works without any ounce of purity of heart. You will just be simply going through the motions or as the story I read says, worldly-minded people going to church for recreation and conformity to a custom. Falsehood. Later in that chapter, verses 13 and 15, 14 is omitted because it's not an original transcript. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across seed and land to make a single proselyte. And when, you, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You're making disciples, you're going on these missional excursions, but what you're doing is you're giving them a religious facade of how to follow rules without ever telling them about Jesus and the gospel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind gods, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel not practicing what you preach. This next one is stealing. Show of hands here, how many of you would say it's wrong to steal? Okay, about half of you, that's good, okay. <laughs> how many of you would teach others it's wrong to steal? Less, okay, good. <laughs> that illustration did not work out as I had planned. We all would say we understand Exodus twenty fifteen. you shall not steal. So what Paul says here is, okay, you know this basic command, do you steal? Jesus called out the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the scribes for stealing in Mark 7, 9 through 13. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. I'm not stealing. I'm just using it. I'm not stealing, I'm just, I'm working the system. I'm not stealing, I'm just not turning in all the information. I'm not stealing, I'm just borrowing it indefinitely. I'm not stealing. I'm just taking something that isn't mine, something I didn't pay for, and I'm using it because it's no big deal because everyone else does it too. 
So we, most of us, would raise our hand and say, I believe it's wrong to steal. And then most of us would raise our hand and say, I teach people that it's wrong to steal. But do you steal? Adultery. Jesus, again, Sermon on the Mount, as we said last week, 5, 27 through 28, you've heard it's, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Later on in that chapter 31 through 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These are difficult words from Jesus. What he's saying here is, you religious people think you can get around the word adultery by going through the paperwork, but your hearts are still committing it. Oh, I would teach people that adultery is wrong, but I, wouldn't, I won't teach them that watching things on TV is wrong. We say that adultery is wrong, but yet we allow ourselves to watch things that would lead us into lustful thoughts. And we approve of them, and we encourage people to follow those things. I guess the question I'm asking is, are you ever strict on laws and commandments that you can keep? And are you ever lax on your interpretation and adherence to laws you don't want to keep? Idolatry. <clears throat> you who abhor idols. Do you rob temples? Now, this is interesting. They actually did literally rob temples. <clears throat> they would go in and they would steal the idol and they would take all the money and all the things that had been offered to that idol and then they would take it out and they would sell it and they would make a profit off of that idol. But figuratively, he's saying, are you robbing temples? Saying, are you using an idol to gain what the idol can get you? Because we would all say, oh, I don't, I don't worship idols. I don't I don't have totem poles and I don't have little figurines that I'm worshiping. I don't do those things. But we know that idols are things that are simply taking the place of God as most important in people's lives. So what Paul is saying here is, you who abhor idols, you who say you hate idols, do you still gain pleasure from what these idols represent? Are you still robbing from them what they represent? Whether the love of money or, or fame or lust. 23, verse 23. You who boast of the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When God's people behave in a way that says God is irrelevant, the world will believe by their example that he is irrelevant. John MacArthur says this. I want to read this to you. Look at your life. Do you adorn the doctrine of God or do you bring reproach upon him? How you live in your family, your school, your job, whatever. Do you really put to silence the ignorance of foolish men? Do you shut the mouths of the critics? Do you let your light shine before the world and before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do they glorify God when they see you? Do they see something honorable, something noble, something wonderful, something lovely, something pure about your life so that they honor the God who is your God? Or do they say that your God must be impotent? Look at the mess you're in. Your God must be evil. Look at the evil in your life. For whatever your life 
is reflects upon the one you say is your God. Hypocritical habits highlight a one-time decision over a lifelong commitment. Third and final point this morning, verses 25 through 29. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision. I had a really good joke here, but I cut it out. <laughs> Man, yeah, some of y'all are pretty slow on that one. I'm getting it. I'm pretty slow. He says, listen, if you want to put all of your confidence in the outward removal of the flesh, how well you do this and don't do this, do this, don't do this, then get ready to obey every single bit of it. Because removing a little bit is not going to be enough. You're going to have to keep the entire law. This takes us back to the covenant that was made in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought, bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What is the significance of this covenant? Well, covenants were a visual sign of the penalty that you would commit if, if broken. So in ancient times, if, if you were to make a covenant deal, you didn't just sign your name on the line. You would do some act showing, if I break this, then this, this happened to me. So if you cut an animal in half and you walked between it and you say, this is a covenant till death do us part, right? So if I break this covenant, I should be put to death. Or you would pour dirt on your head and say, may I become like the dust of the earth if I break this covenant. This is, this is a serious binding covenant agreement. And so if you take the idea of circumcision, then don't think about it too long, but it's cutting off a very sensitive, tender area to say that if you were to break the covenant that you have with God, that there is this very intimate, personal cutting off of you. You are then cut off from God. So if you're going to boast in this, then you better keep the whole law because if you don't, you will be cut off. And so this is what it represents. Here's the deal. No one can keep the covenant. It is simply a sign to identify those who are saved. It didn't save it does nothing to save. Much like the sacraments do today, the sacraments do not save you. They identify you as a follower of Christ. So don't put your faith in an outward thing you have done 
if there's not an evidence of an inward change. What we put our faith in is that Christ is the one who completes the covenant. In fact, Christ was cut off on our behalf. He was, he had our sins poured out on him so that we could be brought back into a right relationship. He was cut off. This is, this is what scripture says in um, Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment, he has taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the, of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Christ was cut off. It is in Christ that we stand before God right. It is not because we have this identity. I'm God's people. It's not because I have the law. I've learned the information. It's not because of any one thing that I've, I've done. It's because of what Christ has done on my behalf. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. If you want to stand before God one day, it won't be because, won't be because of what you have done. It won't be because of one time you did this thing. It will be because of what Christ has done once and for all. It doesn't matter if you prayed a prayer, if you walked an aisle, if you repeated a prayer at VBS, if you were raised in church, if you were baptized, if you know Bible stories, if, you're not, if your heart has not been redeemed and regenerate with the evidence of a life that desires obedience, then please do not leave here without making it right. Don't leave here putting confidence in your flesh because it's in Christ that we are truly circumcised. It is in Christ that we are justified, that we are sanctified. We are crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live. He was circumcised on our behalf. He was bearing the curse of the covenant breaking. He was suffering the curse of the lawbreakers, whether religious or irreligious. In him, we have hope. Colossians 2, 9 through 14. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are being circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We are not cut off because Christ was cut off in our place. This is why baptism is such a beautiful picture that I am no longer me, but I have died to myself and I've been risen to newness of life. I am fully immersed with Christ because he has taken my place on the cross and he has risen from the grave on the third day. Let me ask you, as I invite Chip up, do you know for certain today 
that you're in Christ. Don't boast in things of the past or the knowledge you have or the works that you've done. Has Christ changed your heart? Have you followed him in believer's baptism, saying, I want that to be a sign of the inward change that has taken place in my life? If you haven't, please come talk to me today. I want to talk to you about baptism. I want to talk to you about Christ. If you've not fully surrendered your life to Christ today, today, do not harden your heart. But bow before him in true, genuine repentance. Father, we come to you. We ask God that you would draw our hearts to respond in worship. That we would not boast in the things that we do or the things we know or the way we were raised or the laws we keep or the morals we have, but we would boast in Christ and Christ alone because we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Father, we pray that you would take the information of your word and you would transform us. You would circumcise our hearts. You would cut off the things in our life that don't need to be there. That we would be about following your will. That we would be a witness in a dark world. That we would let our light shine before men so they would glorify you and not us. Father, you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. Amen.